Hello and welcome to the Tin Men podcast, giving you the answers to the questions no one is asking, trying to find out. Why do men live shorter lives than women in every country on earth? Why do men receive prison sentences that are 63% longer than women's for the same crime? Why do men make up 96% of Americans killed by police? Why have British boys fallen behind girls in school every year for three decades? And why are we not asking these questions already? We're not here to tell you what it means to be a man because we don't know, and nor does anyone else. And we are not here to deny the rights of others, but to expand the conversation in good faith to all people. We're not here for hate, but honesty. Here to explore the spaces left behind by the gender debate. To speak an unpopular truth that maybe to be a man isn't always that good. So welcome to what you probably didn't know you didn't know. And welcome to the Tin Men. And let's start off with some honesty. I have never ever done this before. This is as new to me as it is to you. But I do work a lot with actors and scriptwriters and artists and many different creative types. But I am always, always behind the camera. I write the words, I do not speak them, but it's a strange new world out there, and here I am, episode one. And I wanted to start off with a big, big guest for you guys, and I think I've delivered. Her name is Erin Pitsy, and for those of you who don't know who she is, she set up the world's first domestic violence refuge called Chiswick Women's Aid, and it was 50 years ago this year. And I really, really wanted to talk to her and get her on the podcast and to get her story and share it with you guys because it's quite a thing. And here she is. It's amazing to have you, Erin. I, I don't think I'm going overboard when I use the word. It's an honor to talk to you. I, I've put out a, a sort of a poll to all my followers on Instagram and Reddit just to ask for any questions or messages of support for you. And it's my phone won't stop going off. So clearly you're just as relevant as you always have been. Um, and it's amazing to have you here, and thank you for your time. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Erin Pitsy, and I started the first refuge in the world in Chiswick in 1971, and for the last 50 years have been working hard to protect uh, men, women, and children who have all been victims of domestic violence. Um, I guess it's getting straight into it. One of the things I've noticed from you is that you talk about this thing called the big lie. And I've heard you mention it a few times, but can you just tell us what is the big lie? Well, the big lie is that it is the domestic violence, the roots of domestic violence, has never been a gender issue. And I knew that from the beginning when I opened the refuge in 1971. It's the only refuge in the world. There's nothing else like it. So nobody had any experience of the, that I was gaining from the women and children that poured into the refuge. And it was very clear 
that uh, of the 100 women that came in first, and I did a study, 62 of them were as violent as the men they left. I mean, how, how do you even deal with that? I mean, I, I'm dealing with something similar in the sense that what I'm saying is very different to the popular narrative. And how, how do you carry on going knowing that everyone is saying something different to you and you're saying you're the one that's sort of driving into oncoming traffic and how do you know you're the one that's right and they're the ones that are wrong? Evidence. Thank God. It's 50 years later. This year, at some point, hopefully it'll be an, an open conference that we can all personally go. Deborah Pani uh, is, is publishing her PhD on uh, domestic violence and it proves academically beyond doubt that it's not and never has been a gender issue. And it's not only only Deborah, there's other young women in universities now do with, the, with, their, with their evidence-based research. So the time is coming when all this house of cards is going to fall down. I mean, one of the, one of the things, one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on, Erin, um, is because I, I do talk a lot about domestic violence. And one of the things that's continually thrown in my face is, well, you don't have any personal experience. You don't, you've not seen it in real life. And that is, to an extent, true. But you are very much both. You have the information, you have the research, but you've also got more personal experience dealing with abuse victims than anyone perhaps in the world. So, I mean, can you put forward an argument of why domestic violence is not a gendered crime? I think partly my personal experience was both my parents were dysfunctional. My mother was particularly violent and violent to me because I looked like my father. They fought all across the world. He was in the foreign office. So, you know, when I first began talking about domestic violence, I was told, oh, yes, well, it's people who keep coal in the bath. Saying, no, it's not. It's right the way through. You can see it in the royal family. You can see it in all dysfunctional families. And actually, the majority of families are dysfunctional one way or another because, then, you know, human two people mothers and fathers aren't perfect and, and it, it re repeats itself and repeats itself and repeats itself you know you have to think you know, it, it's generational so like me you know you can see the violence going back three generations I could with my family both sides actually so when I opened the refuge I opened it with an open mind and so I wasn't surprised to see violent women coming and I but immediately I, I opened the refuge virtually when I could draw breath the next thing I did was went to the old the London Council and asked for a men's house and I got a fantastic men's house and I was given it for a peppercorn rent and I could not get the men who actually would put their hands in their pockets and subsidize my refuge for women and children wouldn't give me a penny for a men's house. I mean one of the things I'm always amazed by is the disparity of refuge space in which case there's pretty much none for men and and not enough for women but a lot more for women I mean, the numbers I've read uh, as of 2016, there were about three and a half thousand beds in the UK for women and 20 beds for men. How, I mean, how, I mean, it's impossible to answer, question to answer, but how much space would you give for men and how much would you give for women? Equally, because it's not a numbers game. It's, you look at the generational family violence, why would a, a boy not be as affected as a girl? A little boy and a little girl. I mean, and is it possible just to get a little insight into just how... Dis disparate the resources are for men and women how much support is there for men in terms of pounds and pence versus for women nothing really you know one percent that's all do you do you think a lot of this is based on an innate sort of desire for men and women to sort of disproportionately value the well-being and health of women over men yes i think that's it's it's, it's what men do 
you know, you, you notice the difference. Women create movements. The feminist movement is an enormous billion dollar industry across the Western world. There are no major men's groups. There are some, they're small. Yes, they're underfunded, but they haven't a voice. They don't, men do not join and stay and help. Men tend to join while they've got the problem and then to leave. I've said to so many men setting up groups and in the groups, you know, if I asked you to build a bridge, you'd do it tomorrow. But if I ask you to take care of each other and support each other, you don't do it. That, I mean, that is surely a huge hurdle that only, only men can get over. Exactly. But they need to get over it with women to help them. I mean, everyone, everyone talks about the patriarchy as this idea of this oppressive force that builds a world around the needs of men. But if you actually look at politics, there's not a single politician that's advocating for men. And there's not a single department dedicated to men's well-being. Yes, and when I talked to Philip Davis, and I went to visit him, he's the MP that does stand up for men. He says, you know, exactly what I've always found. He says, you know, after I've spoken in the House, men, male MPs will come up and clap me on the shoulder and say, you're a brave man, I don't dare join you. And he is the only MP that speaks up for men. Well, I'm hoping that will change, and I'm sure that's an attitude you've seen continually. There's a kind of fear in men that if any man shows any sort of weakness, it's catching. Yeah, I think your life, for me, seems to be divided between you towing the line and you not towing the line. So can you tell me about the second half of that, where, where you decided, no, this isn't right, and then the backlash you received? Well, it happened because, uh, it, it happened because I was reading The Guardian, and there was Jill Tweedy. And I got to know her very well. And she was writing about this new movement that had come from America. We were going to make huge changes for women, a lot of which I agreed with. There were things that needed changing. I mean, even simple things like I resented as a woman having to prove to the doctor that I was going to be married before I was allowed to have the contraceptive pill. Simple things like that. So I went for my first meeting and uh, it was in Chiswick. And I'd, I'll never forget walking up to this house and, and it had a long corridor and you climbed up the stairs to get to the sitting room. And because I was quite frightened. I didn't know what I was going to see. And I went into this room and I sat down and the woman who was running it went round the room and asked us to name ourselves and then said to me, what do you think your problem is? And I said, I'm isolated. I was like most women, completely isolated. The only time you could meet other women is if you met them in parks or playgroups in those days. Uh, and I just said that, you know, I wanted more out of life. And she just looked at me and she said, your problem isn't you being isolated. Your problem is your husband, he oppresses you. And I said, hang on a minute, he goes to work so that I can have the luxury of living in a comfortable house with the bills paid and time to spend with my children. But that's, from that moment onwards, I realized there was something very wrong. And so we, I, we were the Gold Hall Road group and we drank very large gin and tonics and bitched about things and all things women do when they talk together. And it wasn't long before I went up to the head office, which was in Poland Street off Shaftesbury. And I thought, right, I'll go and see what's happening. Thing. I was trained secretary, so I took over answering all the letters. And it's exactly as I thought it was. The, the, the three pounds tens came in through the post and they rip open the post office, uh, the, the letters and just bung them in carrier bags and take the money out because a lot of it was cash. It didn't take long before I had a massive fight with them all, it was thrown out and banned from all collectives. 
It'd be great if we could just go back 50 years. I mean, I've, I've heard different dates, but when did you open the first refuge and, and what? It's 50 years this year, 1971. I mean, so to take me back and how did that, how did that happen? What's the story? My vision was a very simple vision. And so I thought this is what I thought we were going to be doing and we're not. So I had um, friends, uh, the, uh, my group, and we, we, we petitioned Hounslow Council and we got a little tiny meeting house. It was going to be called Women's Aid. And the idea was that any woman with her children, home alone or for any reason, could come to the house, be given a key and have access. The most important thing was the playgroup. So women could actually come together and uh, bring their children with them. And then we would just work around the kids. We had an office, we had typewriter, we had a, a telephone and we got on with it. And very, very quickly women were coming who would not normally go to social services or to anybody professional. Uh, and so they very quickly, we learned that we needed to know everything there was about welfare, the welfare state to help them apply for what they needed. And we just fought hard. Kathy was the first woman. She came in and she showed us her bruises. Wally had beaten her with her arm, with her leg of her chair, and she was just blue all, all over her body. Mm. And I, I, I couldn't send her back. Uh, and we had, I took her home the first night because there was no way I could leave her in there by, on, by herself. I took her home and then she became the first person to actually stay in the refuge. And then was followed by, it was like a, a, a tsunami of women and kids. And so after Kathy, we just, it was a tiny house. It was two up, two down, little courtyard with a loo at the corner. And we just took people in and they slept on mattresses on the floor and we managed. And we just said, look, we're not, we're not going to turn anyone away. Why, why would we? There isn't a woman in the house who'd turn anyone away. Then, you know, as miracles happen, and uh, in came this very nice man and he sat down with everybody and he looked at me and he said, what do you want? And I, we looked at it, we said, well, we need a bigger house. And he said, well, go buy one. And we all looked at him funny. And he was, he, he was the head of Bovis, Neville Vincent, the huge building firm. So that's exactly what we did. All of us, mums and kids, all went down to Chiswick High Road. And there we saw this great big house and we bought it and um, that was the next move. As you know, we, we were silting up with mothers and kids. So we thought, right, okay, then we need, to, we need to squat. And we became very quickly the biggest squatting agency in England. We owned streets, not just houses. And the biggest squat was Palm Court Hotel in Richmond. It had 47, if I'm right, private suites. And one night we took, moved 78 mothers and kids in. Going back to um, Chiswick Women's Aid, the first domestic shelter in the world, when, when did you first realise that men could be victims too? I think, I think in my own way, even as a child, although my father was a brute, he wasn't physically violent, but he was, he was given where he'd come from. He was one of 17 children, the youngest. Uh, and uh, he, but, but I watched my mother really abuse him. I watched her spend every penny she could whenever she felt like it. And I saw a man who was hopelessly addicted to, to this woman, tiny little narcissistic exhibitionist, cold, unfeeling, and very cruel. And she hated him. 
that I mean that does touch on something that I've I've learned is that the way men and women are violent or aggressive isn't always the same. Men perhaps are more physically violent, whereas women uh, they sort of lean more on relational aggression, where you're attacking someone's relationships, you're attacking someone's status. But I think the worst weapon is ridicule, shaming. It's easy to shame men. So I mean, if if any men are listening right now that are experiencing abusive behaviour and they they're struggling to identify it as as abuse. What could you say to them to sort of help them realise what they're going through isn't, isn't normal? It's difficult with men. It's interesting because whereas women will open up and talk very freely, men are very frightened of discussing their relationships. And when you're working with a man who's, who's, who needs to look at why it is he ever is constantly attracted to what I call violence-prone women, then that's when you have to get him to recognise that, that the kind of relationship that he is in is toxic it is violent but again you see he may never have known anything else some of the things that women are prepared to do to men men wouldn't even think of doing if i say it's, it's you're right it's it, it's the psychology of the violence and that in many ways i've always said even in the refuge the bones will heal the bruises will fail but the words never go away well, that, well, that's one thing I want to sort of touch on, because I know a lot of people listening to this will be like, well, it's one thing to be beaten. and But a lot of male suicides are tied to uh, intimate partner issues. Yes, and they are. I mean, and I also, I also should say as well that it, it, women are capable of physical violence too. Oh, yes. As one woman said, because you know, they were talking about this in the refuge, and she simply said, yes, but knives are a great leveler. Usually women will go for knives. And, and also women... Also, could have, there are many cases where they actually get some other man instigate him to kill their partner. And then, of course, they go down as ex, as accessories, not as murders. So this this was very much a, something that you noticed and you brought to public awareness. So I would lo- I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience because I know you were very much harassed, uh, picketed, um, and eventually had your life threatened when you started to um, talk about male victims of violence. Is that something that you're comfortable telling me about? And what was that like? Well, it, it it was very difficult because, I mean, anywhere I went in England, I got screamed at by pickets. And I mean, I'd ended up, um, I had to have a police escort all around England. And mm-hmm. you don't get one of those if they're not worried about what's going to happen to you. I had a nervous breakdown in the end. I was in Charing Cross Hospital for three months. Um, it was It was such a terrible time. So when, when did you decide it was enough was enough? The children, um, particularly Cleo, my daughter, they'd, they'd, they'd grown up in the refuge and, and they, 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 you know, they knew that I was under threat at times. One day Cleo rang me at the refuge and said, Mum, parcel's come, but it hasn't got any stamps on it. It hasn't got any. It's just arrived and it's you know, arrived at your address. So I said, what, what should I do with it? And I said, well, put it out at the end of the garden. So when I arrived, the bombs were already there. And I walked into the house, and I, I, I and look, I could see the package on the on the on the. Uh, it's very painful, this, and mm. so it ended up. I, what what made me realise I had to stop was I was looking at my granddaughter Keita and grandson Keita and Amber, and Keita was probably about six, Amber was four, and there was fear in their eyes because you know they come in the bomb squad with huge amount of equipment on them. And they went down to the bottom of the garden and they picked it up and they took it away. And actually, it was nothing to worry about. It was somebody sending me a box of tofu. 
<laughs> Almost as bad as a bomb. But it just made me realise I couldn't go on like this. And when you said you have to, you had to stop. What is it that you had to stop? Running the refuge. And and this this movement that were threatening you, they were very much threatening themselves by what you were saying because they must have known there was truth, and with that truth, they were going to lose their influence and their funding. Absolutely, and it will happen. I mean, this is I've been waiting. I'm 82 now, and I want to see it happen before I die. I want refugees run properly for what they should be about, which is therapeutic communities for all victims of domestic violence. Just remember one of the many pickets. I was at the, uh, at the Savoy because it was a luncheon uh, for Women of the Year luncheon thing. And they were all out there and screaming and yelling and carrying on. And I went out and I walked up to them. And I said to these women who were from, ref they were in the refuges, I said, but don't you understand? that, you know, I founded the first refuge. It didn't help because they were so worked up because they had these banners that said, Aaron Pitsy condones male violence. I don't condone anybody's violence. No, I mean, that's, I guess that's, it's very difficult when someone has a sign that says that. If you want to talk about male victims, someone's always like, well, do you not care about women victims? Are you minimizing women's victims? I'm like, oh no, I'm not. I'm, no, anything, I'm, I'm trying to, ex I'm expanding my compassion to both sexes, men and women. Well, it's about children. You know, all, all it is is that, you know, the, the, the victims are grown up. But, but, but it's like a cancer of the soul because, you know, if, if, all you've, if, if you've been marinated in violence as a child, mm. how do you learn anything else if no one will give you the option? We could, if we would accept that generational family violence and dysfunction is the, the root cause of all violence and dysfunction then we could actually create the refuges should be therapeutic communities where men and women who have been disadvantaged and harmed and traumatized can heal then we would empty mental hospitals and we would empty prisons and that's what i really believe in that's one of the things i i'm very much interested in in, in prison i mean how many of the men i mean it is overwhelmingly men in prison how many of those men need help and how many of them are genuinely bad people Children aren't born bad. Majority of them, majority, I would say, and I think that the prison governors know this, that virtually, I would say, at least 75% of the men in there were from violent backgrounds. And a lot, a lot of them are struggling with homelessness, a lot of them with uh, substance abuse. Yeah, well, you know, I, I've always said that the, the reason why the figures are so high for men committing suicide is men are a lot more emotionally damaged by family violence than women. You used to notice very easily also in the, the refuge, the children, the girls would come in and it didn't take them long to settle, you know, make friends, go around in little gangs and do what girls do. It was the boys, because boys don't go around like that. They don't take care of each other. It just doesn't happen. They're isolated. And, and as men, they grow up and repeat the patterns. And that's, that's pretty much, that's where you talk about a circular cycle of violence where children who are abused become abusers and they abuse our children and then they grow up and they become abusers themselves and i wonder whether that's one of the one of the ways in which the modern movement is going wrong is how it's it's developing without without that positive male role model yeah and what what the the difference and this is why the men were so important is that in the refuge they had male models and mentors mm. and so we had a wonderful group called we people 
who would come and work with the refuge, in the refuge, and mend and build things for us. There were men with various professional abilities. There were skimmers and, and builders, and there were painters and decorators. So what we all decided to do was each boy was uh, chosen, uh, uh, one of the men, to become the mentor. And every boy would work alongside his mentor, patching up the, the refuge and the, and the, and the, the squats, and they would be paid by the hour, every hour they worked. From the very beginning, men worked in the refuge. Mm. Women and men who were there and were always there. For, for a lot of women, the model they have is of male violence. Because how would you know good gentlemen if your reality is shaped by violence and dysfunction? And what you, what you saw there is the men coming in, they were absolutely wonderful. That's, that's so interesting in the sense that the, the importance of positive male role models in, in the lives of boys. I mean, if you look at the violent men, if you look at men who are addicted to drugs or who, who become homeless and boys that run away, boys that have behavioral issues, boys that fail at school, an overwhelming number of them have come from homes without a father or homes without any male role model at all. And if you look at schools, 80% of primary school teachers are women. So there's an overwhelming lack of masculinity. And, it go, and that, again, that goes completely against the narrative of toxic masculinity. Difficult one, because I was, I was interested in this. To, I did a reading course that you can do, and it's to help children in school with their reading. I, I was taken on by a very, very big primary school in Hounslow, and I went there for a year, and I had three boys. One of them was supposed to be the worst boy in the school, the primary school. He was fantastic. The idea was that I would help them read because they were supposed to be backward at reading. Well, it wasn't very complicated. The middle boy, he was considered remedial. And he he was a, a, a football, unbelievable. He knew every everything that ever happened in football from the year dot. And he could recount and who won. And, and I just said to the headmaster, how can you say he's remedial? He's just not interested. So I, brought, I got him a, the biography of Steve Gerrard from Liverpool. Mm. He and I read it wow. together. And we read the whole thing right through to the end. He was so excited. He couldn't wait to read it. And many of the boys were actually, by the age of 11, were as tall as the teachers. And they'd just end up screaming, trying to keep some kind of control. And they had this horrible monster of a woman who used to run around outside. And you know, she did it to, to one of my boys. She didn't do it again. She just used to scream at them and shame them. And they were shaming was the way they did most of it. You're stupid. You're, you know, and you listen to it, you think, how dare you? But, you know, it, it, I just, I, in the end, exactly as you said, there were no men. There was one PE teacher, and that was it in the whole school. Wow. And you can't touch children. You can't, you can't hug them. You can't, they can't give you something. Uh, you're treated as a potential pedophile. So no yeah. wonder men don't want to work in, in primary schools. They're open to any kind of allegation. I mean, would you, do you think the Western education system is failing, failing boys? It failed from years ago. It failed years and years ago. I mean, going, going back to domestic violence or our treatment of men as a society in general, one of the things that you, um, you said, I've seen on a video that I found quite profound, was um, you said men are dying and they're dying from being hated. Could you give us a little insight in, into that? Well, men are dying and the suicide figures are the actual example of how many men are dying and they're dying basically 
they're dying because of the feeling that there is no future for men in this society. You know, words are applied to men like toxic, words like... Privilege, entitlement, fragility. All of it, all of it, yes, and, and brutality. The, the, the message is, if you are born with a Y chromosome, you are likely to be a rapist and a batterer. So let, let's say um, we are able to fire uh, Jess Phillips, the current shadow minister for domestic violence. Um, yes, we need to. And we made you the minister for domestic violence. And I think, I can't think of anyone more qualified. What, what top line changes would you make immediately? Well, first of all, it would have to go into the training of all the staff and not only the staff, the government, the so-called experts in domestic violence. And this training would have to begin with generational family violence and the understanding that that wheel of violence is, will, will continue until we start from the very beginning to make the changes to see that it doesn't happen. One of the things I always hear, like, well, why can't men make their own refuges? Why do they need uh, feminism to do it for men? They can do it for themselves. But why is it not quite that simple? Because there's no money offered to men. Look, I'm a patron of mankind, which is a, a brilliant organization for men. And I'm also a patron for fa fa families need fathers. They have to scrape for every penny they get. I mean, one of the things I'd love love to know is what refuge think of you, Erin. I mean... Oh, well, I can tell you. What do they think? Well, they think they, they well, they've said, I said, you know, ages ago, I mean, is it possible for me to come and film in, in my old refuge, the house that I bought? And I was told they would call the police if I turned up. About five years ago, I got a letter from refuge saying, could I not use the word refuge because of the ideological differences between the two of us? I mean, that's, that's, that's gratitude for you, I suppose. Um, I mean, at, at the center of a lot of this is a thing called the, uh, the Duluth model. And a lot of people don't know what that is. Essentially, it's a framework that helps, uh, helps us define what domestic abuse is. And it's the most widely adopted framework of abuse in the world. So Erin, it would be really good if you could just tell us what is the Duluth model. If you look at, at my, um, I've got a website, honest-ribbon.org. Professor Nicola Cavan graham or with way around Graham Cavan, has written the, a, a definitive uh, article about the Duluth model and what a failure it is. We all know it's a failure. The Duluth model basically is like a big wheel and the spokes in the wheel are anti, every one of the spokes of the wheel are anti-men and fathers. And the first thing when a man is offered, the, and he has no choice because if he doesn't take the Duluth course, he can't see his children and he's only allowed to see them in contact centers. So virtually all Kafkas officers, all judges will be told that he should, whether he's guilty or not, he should go on this, this, on this course. And the first thing he has to agree to when he goes on the course is to apologize for his male privileges. So that tells you what the Duluth model is about. I, I think it's so ironic in a world where we have police officers and firefighters and everything is going gender neutral, which I, I agree with. Why, why are we using a, a model of domestic violence that is so heavily gendered toward women and against men? Follow the money. It's only about money. I know you weren't the only person to receive death threats and bomb threats because of your advocacy for men. A lot, a lot of other academics, very important, very prestigious academics, uh, 
Murray Strauss, who invented the research, the way in which we researched domestic violence was invented by Murray Strauss. I'll just tell you about that. I'm, I was asked to go in 1974-75 to the Eastern Seaboard. And one of the people I met with, or the three people, was Susan Steinmetz, Murray Strauss and Richard Gellis. We were in the same room together. And we sat down and they had just begun their research projects. Now, Murray's, I, was, he, I know he died just recently, but he's a great friend of mine. And there's an interview on my website with him so you can actually hear him talking and explaining. Yeah, Susan Steinmetz wrote the first book on battered men. And she had death threats. She had bomb threats uh, to her family. And she stopped. She got. She went out of the whole business. Richard, Richard Gellis was at Rhode Island, and he too went on with the research. But it was Murray Strauss who actually produced probably the best work ever in America. And then you've got other people. You've got Don Dutton in Canada. He was a. He was an. He he did most wonderful work. He's retired now, but he was a fantastic man. Well, he is a fantastic man. So there were very good people everywhere. I mean, and these these are high world leading academics in the field of family. They're not just tin pot researchers. There, no, 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 they're not. I mean, Murray Strauss himself. I read a report from Murray Strauss where he got two hundred surveys and studies from all over America over the course of thirty years that, beyond doubt, prove that there's gender symmetry in violence, and even that is being ignored. I know, but this Debbie Debbie Pony's did a questionnaire of a thousand men. And she is now writing the results up, so you'll get them quite soon. So who, who are, I guess, as a, a bit of a plug to the next generation of researchers, who, who, who is the new Richard uh, Gellis and who is the new Susan Steinmex? What's happening next? Well, I think, I think you'd have to look at um, Nicola, can I get this right, uh, Graham Kavan, who's a professor at Leicester University, Debbie Pani, she's a student for, of her, it's coming. All I can tell you is it's coming, it's coming soon, and it'll make a huge change. I think that's a really positive note. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the things you say, people are going to be listening to this and they're going to feel hopeless. But things are changing, and there are, there is a lot of movement that's happening, and a lot of awareness is being um, made. And I, I've seen it firsthand. Yeah, because I, cause I, I, I was this lone voice for years. And no, I'm not anymore. I told you, I've already told you, there are a lot of young women as well coming out of the universities with doing the kind of research that has been desperately needed, you know, and, and this will actually make this huge change and it should come this year. I mean, I guess, well, my question to you is, is there hope for, for the men that feel hopeless? Yes, of course there's hope. First and foremost, you know, men have started to get more realistic about women because they're not at the moment. You, know, you have, oh, well, yes, she does throw tantrums. Well, what do you mean throw tantrums? Well, she throws things at me, right? It's all, it's all this thing of he can't bear the fact that he has to admit that she's violent. So that this, this change where you talked about you want to see the change happened in your, in your lifetime. I so. think by the end of this year and the beginning of the next, we're going to have the evidence that we've always needed to, to, to basically tear down this, the evil empire that has been sitting on millions of pounds of really millions of pounds and misspending it and then once that happens i think you'll see them change very rapidly i'm hoping give it the next five years we'll have this discussion again it'll be completely changed i mean that that's a, a great positive note i mean to just to, to end erin the thing that i'm asked most is like what can i do to help 
So if people are listening to this and they want to see this change, they want to see that change within five years, as you just, as you explained, what do they have to do in real terms to see that happen? They have to contact and, and don't sneer. There's a lot of people sneer at this, but they need to contact their MPs, their local MPs, and actually encourage them to stand up in Parliament and call for the, the, the recognition of generational family violence as opposed to gendered family violence. I'm also aware that you've just written another book. Yes, it was uh, uh, It was called This Way to the Revolution. And again, it took me 10 years to get it published. I was turned down by almost every publisher in England, which is not a surprise. As you know, all my books have been remaindered as well. And is this, this is out now or is it coming out? It's out. No, it's been out for quite a while. And I mean, if, any, if anyone does want to support, everyone always asks me how they can support me. And I, I want to say they can support me by supporting you and buying your book just is the least we can do to show our appreciation yes and then and then get get hold of your mps and, and insist that the change has to come and i think it will come i think i'm i feel positive no, I, I do too i mean a year ago i was talking to 20 people and now i'm talking to over eight thousand. so i mean it's changing a lot and a lot of people are, are just sick and tired of being afraid of of keeping it to themselves so no i actually do think men can be abused and I think people are, are are not being silent anymore and they're having an opinion and uh, they're standing up for men and it's about time and it is, th- it is thanks to you I mean you, you were one of the people that started a movement 50 years ago so with that I mean I would like to thank you and again just it's, it has been an honour and, and a privilege to talk to you and I really do hope that we see a move a change that you described I, I, I'm, I've always known that the change will come. I mean, it's a very new movement, if you think about it. It got hijacked like so many other movements. And then the truth will come out, you know, because it's a shining light. And, uh, and God bless all the people who recognize that and fight in their own way towards it. Well, that's perfect. I mean, it is a light, and I really do think it will come out. And, um, and, here's, and here's to that. So... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it there, Erin. And again, thank you for your time. It's been enlightening as always. I do have questions from followers. I'm not going to give them all to you because there are just so many. And the good news is that I can tick about 80% of them off by just saying thank you and offering support and admiration. And I mean, a lot of people have just been absolutely blown away by your work and your, your courage. Yeah, because it's difficult when you've been completely wiped out of any kind of, you know, it, and it hurts really. I mean, well, that is a question. I mean, it's a bit of a personal question, but how how do you feel your life would have been different had you just towed the line and just gone along with the the big lie, as you called it? Well, I would have ended up with the kind of money that um, um, uh, what's called Sandra Hawley ended up with, something like two hundred thousand pounds a year salary. Can you imagine? I mean, one one of my one of my followers was saying, "How how have you managed to secure an interview with Erin Pitsy?" And I'm like, well... It wasn't difficult, was it? Yeah, no, it was not. I mean, despite the, the world-changing work that you have done, and I do use the word national treasure to describe you, unfortunately, you're, you're, it hasn't ended that way for you because you had the courage to do what was right rather than what was popular. Well, I think, you know, all of us have a path. Uh, um, um, and we're born. And uh, my path... Uh, and it's funny because I used to talk about this to mothers... And say, you know, it's funny because had I not had violent parents, both, uh, had I not as a child swore to myself that I would never scream and yell at my partner or my children like they did, uh, the refuge might never have been born. 
So my, my religious feeling is that all people have what I call a shining path. And once you're on it and you know that this is what you have to do, you do it. And I used to say, our job is to love the unlovable. As difficult as it is. <laughs> I have, I have a, a, quick, a bit of a question from someone. And that is this, Erin. Um, it says, please tell her I greatly admire her fair and equal beliefs on the issue of domestic violence. I was invited to sit on the board of my local women's aid branch. The manager of the branch was very sympathetic indeed to men who experienced domestic abuse and explained that they regularly receive num a number of calls from men and to who they are apologetic that their funding means that they cannot provide help to them directly. However, I wonder what Erin would think of the two following scenarios. Um, I'm only going to go for the first one. A family was admit admitted to our refuge from a violent home. The oldest son, who turned 16 only weeks later, was ejected from the refuge because he was then an adult male. And the organisation's policy does not permit adult males inside a refuge. His choice was to become homeless and separated from his mother and siblings uh, or to return to his violent father. When his sister, who was over 16, was allowed to remain at the refuge with the family. What does Aaron feel about the rules which prevent men from being allowed in the refuge, which directly led to teenage boys being left as victims? Well, well it's appalling. It's always been like this. I told you many of the refuges won't take boys over the age of 12. The mother has to make other arrangements. And mostly that means she has to get hold of social, social services or they're called in and they take him into care. But that, and that doesn't apply to, to girls? Girls allowed to stay? No, no, girls, no, absolutely not. No. Um, and this, this happens in all the refuges. And uh, there's no attempt. What I did, as we regularly had, well, we take boys in at any age. I mean, some of them were 18, running from these violent men. We had, eventually, I had one of my houses, was called the boys' house. Mm. And the boys could opt to go there, which they did, actually. And it was their own house. And, uh, and uh, uh, I remember, because they had to make house rules, which, which we all did in, in our communities. And one of the first house rules is no women were allowed to come. I think they specifically meant their mothers. That's <laughs> fair enough. Um, another, another question I have, and we've covered it before, but it'd be great to get a, another answer from you, Erin, is that what was it that first led you to see women as equally capable of violence as men? Well, my mother beating me up with an ironing cord. Yeah, that that opens your eyes, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Um, okay, great. I mean, that's a great answer. Um, and how? And what? What is? I mean, someone's talking about intimate partner suicide, which is obviously very rarely measured or talked about. But I mean, what is? What is the link between sort of domestic violence against men and intimate partner suicide? I mean, what? What can you tell us about that? Well, it's for some men, it's the, when they lose, they know, and it's different for women. They know because of the way society works that if they choose to leave a violent relationship, they will have nowhere to go. They will have they will be cut off immediately by the mother for ever seeing their children again. They will not get rehoused. Uh, and the only recourse for many of them, because when they lose everything like that, is, is to die, is to kill themselves. And it's different for women, you see. If a woman wants to leave, she she for the last 50 years will be given a place, she'll be taken care of, she can get money, she can get rehoused. It's completely different. We don't take care of men. And what, what, what are the other red flags that you've, you've seen in your experience? Especially, especially red flags that men might, might be experiencing without realising it. Well, I think the first one is, is where the woman checks, both, both, both men and women do it. If you think she checks on your phone, she wants to know where you are, you have to ring her up regularly, perhaps twice a day at least. Mm. She wants to know where you are. 
if you are if she sees you look at another woman you would be in dead trouble so you get to where you don't you, you make a point of never looking at an attractive woman there are all those things you know that you have to think about if, you, if you're with a violent woman and it, the, this is the difference i find if you're from a normal warm loving family so you know what a warm loving relationship is if by accident you get involved with a violence prone women you get out because you're normal you know that's not right but it's where the two where both of them have come from very dysfunctional families they don't know how to make relationships apart from anything else the only glue that holds them together is sex often and and the bonding and the other and the and the addiction how do we bring women on board this movement without them feeling alienated i think women are well aware i think the public are well aware you know yeah we do know it's just that we can't as as it's set up now there is no place for any of us with a voice to say hang on a minute it's not a male it's not a a, a male versus female it's both it's what you do to children the generational issue and small children exposed to violence and dysfunctional families tend to grow up to repeat the patterns of their parents it's so true um well that's it thank you again erin and if there's any any closing remarks you want to say then and please do share them well to all your followers we can all make a difference every single day by being very aware that we do not in any way make statements that are harmful for children that you do not actually say to a, bo- a little boy don't be a sissy uh, and you do not say to a little girl um, i remember uh, one of the first injustices i ever suffered as a little girl was when i found out that boys could have pen knives and girls couldn't <laughs> would you have a pen knife now i hope well yes yeah, the, the big the biggest swiss army pen knife you've ever seen <laughs> Well, good for, good for you. I mean, if that's not you smashing the patriarchy, I don't know what is. Okay, well, thank you, Erin. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I really, I'd be great to talk to you again sometime soon, maybe in person, who knows? Bye-bye. And that's it from me too. Thank you so much for listening and being part of this journey. Not just a podcast, but in general, your comments, your messages of support, uh, your feedback, your advice, your questions. Even if you don't agree with me, please get in touch. Because I am here to listen and I'm also here to learn. I can't go into too much detail, but The Tin Men has a lot of big, exciting things to come in the next days, weeks, months, who knows, years ahead. A lot of amazing guests who I'm, again, extremely proud to speak to and share the story with you guys. So have patience. It may not be perfect just yet, but I'm a fast learner. So stick around and I'll speak to you all soon.